chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message, believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know that in Fellowship Bible Church, we are uh, advocates of what is called expositional preaching where we go through the various books of the Bible. And uh, I have often wrestled with that because some of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, men like Charles Spurgeon, were not expositional. And in fact, Spurgeon believed that expositional preaching was a quenching of the Holy Spirit. That uh, the preacher should be led by the Spirit of God to the topic and to the passage that he would bring before the congregation each Lord's Day. And if it was anyone other than Charles Spurgeon saying something like that, you would just dismiss it. But I will have to say, with regard to expositional preaching, that there are some passages that, having read them, I feel like I should just say amen and sit down. And Acts chapter 4, verse 12 is just such a passage. What more can be said? Well, nothing, <laughs> really. And so what I hope to bring before you today is an understanding from the perspective of the church, who we are, as to what Peter and John and then the church with them in Jerusalem was experiencing and about to experience. Because Jesus, before he gave himself up on Calvary, told his disciples that if the world has hated me, they will hate you, and that in this world you shall experience persecution. Up to now, and it's only been a few days since Pentecost, but up to now things have been going quite, uh, quite peachy for the disciples. But it's going to start getting rough. And I'd like to try to paint a picture for you of Jerusalem at the time known as Second Temple Israel, the, the first century of, of our era, the time in which Jesus ministered, the time, of course, in which the apostles are living. What was it like? There has been an emphasis in recent decades on emphasizing and studying the, the Jewishness of Jesus and of the apostles, of bringing back to Western evangelical teaching somewhat of an understanding of the content and the context of our Bibles. 
But when we think of Israel in the first century, we, we tend to think of it as being somewhat monochromatic, somewhat unified in its, in its theology and in its practice and in its temple worship, in its hatred of the Romans. In, in other words, it was a fairly homogenous society. But no such society has ever existed among men. And whereas a society may, may appear to be unified and, and a unity when looking at it from without, if we can get inside of it, we find out that it, it wasn't all that unified at all. In fact, I think one of the best metaphors to describe Israel, Judea, and especially Jerusalem in this time is a seething cauldron. There were a number of different religious and political groups within Israel at the time, each of which had their own opinion of how it was proper to worship Jehovah. There were the Essenes, for example, who had already abandoned the temple. It is unlikely that an Essene would have heard Peter's message because it was delivered in Solomon's colonnade. And the Essenes had already deemed the temple to be so corrupt by the next group we're going to meet, the Sadducees, that they would not even worship there. They withdrew, as it were, from church. We don't know anybody who's ever done that, have we? <laughs> We've never known in the history of the church that the institutional church has become so corrupt that a faithful believer could no longer go there. Well, that was the case. And I mentioned the Sadducees. Well, now, these were the descendants of Zadok, the high priest, where we get Sadducee, the Zadokim. These were the powers of Jerusalem. These were the wealthy. We, meant, we even read their names, Caiaphas and Annas, Alexander and John. These were the men who were the movers and shakers. These were the liaisons between the nation of Israel and the overlord Romans. These men had political power that they did not want to lose. Their union and their collaboration with the worldly power that governed the land had severely damaged their understanding of Jehovah and of his scriptures. These were those, of course, who denied that there was a resurrection. Their philosophy was an embracing of the Hellenism, the Greek philosophy, that had entered into the Middle East when Alexander the Great had conquered so much of that land three centuries before. These were what we would call secular men, even though they were the heads of the church. They were the rulers of the Sanhedrin. In this mix, there were also zealots. Zealots were those who believed that the, that the, the righteous people of Israel should rise up and wage jihad, holy war against the Romans, to overthrow the Roman overlord, the pagans that defiled the land, and to re-establish the Davidic kingdom. That was just a, a sampling. Then there were the Pharisees, and there were the, the Qumran community, of, of whose scrolls we now benefit. And there were the scribes, who were the students and the authors of, of law books, meaning the, the law of God, not the civil law. And these groups despised one another almost as much and perhaps more than they despised the Romans. 
So that's a picture of first century Israel, not very unified at all. What is remarkable to me, and you, when you read about Israel, you, you realize that when Jesus chose his 12, he selected from each group. There were those who, who wanted to abandon any association. There were those who wanted to bring down fire from heaven upon those that they considered apostate. There was a zealot named Simon. The apostle John and his brother James were apparently, we're told in the gospel, family friends of the household of Caiaphas and Annas. So apparently the sons of Zebedee, the family of Zebedee, had connections. Maybe perhaps even within John and James's family were Sadducees. There's this mix, even a tax gatherer pulled into the mix. Jesus comes into this mayhem and he draws from every single segment. There was no unity in first century Judea, but there was one thing that would unify all these disparate factions, the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're witnessing here. We're witnessing a, a real-world event, real people, people who in normal life couldn't stand each other, people who would rather kill each other than sit next to one another, people who accused each other of apostasy or of endangering the state, treason. But they would be brought together. They would be unified by one name, the name of Jesus Christ. Some of them would be brought together in unity, in belief. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of these people, undoubtedly just as heterogeneous, just as much a mix as the society around them, were brought into Jesus Christ through baptism. We're told here that by this time, the men alone numbered 5,000. This movement was having a serious impact. But for the majority of the nation, this name would bring them together in opposition. Jesus himself said, and you, speaking to his disciples, will be hated by all on account of my name. You want to bring a Pharisee and a Sadducee together? You want to join in an Essene and a Zealot? And I'm speaking in our day as well as in the day of the Apostles. Mention the name of Jesus Christ. You will immediately find out those who are with you and those who are against you. It is that type of a name. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword upon the earth. And that sword is still here, wielded from heaven through the church by the Holy Spirit. That sword is still the name of Jesus Christ. Last week I said that what we are experiencing here in the history of redemption is a tremendous crisis, a crisis that is being brought by Peter and the other apostles to the people of God, the nation of Israel. Jesus prophesied that this would happen. He said, And brother will deliver brother unto death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents. Hatred of Jesus will unite disparate forces within Israel, and that power will be poured and, and targeted against the disciples and against the church. Jesus said, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you 
to think he is offering service to God. And that word that is translated offering service is the very word that is used in the scriptures to describe the ministry of the priesthood. That those will actually kill you thinking they are offering up a service to God. That statement describes much of the history of the Christian church. The name of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure the Sadducees and the leaders, the rulers of Israel, at this point, quite understand what they're dealing with. When we read this passage in light of what we've already read, remember, this is the same assembly and the very same men before whom Jesus was brought when he was falsely accused, tried, and condemned to death. And what time of day was that done? Well, it was done at night, which was illegal. To have any court at night was against the laws of the Jewish people. But here we see that in their first dealings with the disciples, they didn't quite understand what they were up against. Because they brought Peter and John and they laid hands upon them, but they put them in jail because it was evening. So I have a feeling that as we read this narrative, we, we understand or we see that, that Caiaphas and, and Annas, they were well aware of what they were against with Jesus, but they weren't quite aware of what they were dealing with now. They despised these Galileans. They didn't fear them. They recognized that a notable miracle had been done. And they couldn't deny it, which means they weren't good politicians. Because it is, it is the nature of politics, of course, to deny the obvious. We see that every day. But here these men are recognizing that something notable has been done. A man who was lame from birth is now healed, and the people are talking about it. But there's Peter and John, what's to worry about? Fishermen from Galilee, an unlettered and untrained man, they would say. They didn't know what they were up against yet. They didn't understand that the power that filled Jesus was now multiplied in his disciples through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was almost as if it was a hydra. They have cut off the head, they think. They've gotten rid of Jesus, the troublemaker. <laughs> no, they've just started the trouble, folks. Because now Jesus, having ascended to heaven has put his spirit into every one of his believers. And he said himself, you marvel at the work that I do, greater works shall they do, because I go to the Father. It's remarkable to, to watch or to listen to this narrative. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, who only a few weeks before was in a very similar location, Although he was not inside the courtroom, remember, he was outside in the courtyard. And what was Peter doing that night? Three times he was denying that he knew Jesus. Three times he was separating himself, distancing himself from his Lord. So he comes before them and the Sanhedrin thinks, okay, we will overawe them with the majesty of our authority in the Sanhedrin. And then we'll give them a stern warning. 
and we'll tell them, don't do that again. Yeah, that's going to work. Because this Peter isn't the same Peter of a few weeks before. This Peter is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And he turns to them, and I imagine this was a pretty uh, intimidating group. I imagine that Caiaphas and Annas were probably wearing their high priestly robes. I imagine the Sadducees, the family of the high priest, were probably decked out in the regalia of their wealth. I imagine the scribes and the Pharisees had their rolls and their scrolls, and it was probably a very intimidating atmosphere for a humble fisherman from Galilee who had never attended professional education. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That the scripture might be fulfilled that was prophesied by God's Son, Jesus, who said to his disciples, In that day make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. I don't know if Peter remembered these words of his Lord, but I am confident that he had not prepared overnight for his own defense but rather when he saw who he, who he was standing in front of, he turned to them and spoke to them as the builders of Israel, the false and incompetent builders of Israel. And I think we're beginning to see that there is a central theme to Peter's preaching. And when we realize that this is the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, then I think it is fair to say that if we recognize a theme, it's probably a theme that is of the essence of the gospel. For the third time, Peter says basically the same thing. This Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, is the one in whom alone there is salvation. This Jesus, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. I think it's safe to say that if our responsibility, our sin, our responsibility in the death of Jesus Christ is not acknowledged, if the grace of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not acknowledged, then whatever is being preached is not the gospel. We may, as the church has done, blame the crucifixion on the Jews. And we may, as the church has done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, persecute and kill Jews as those we believe killed the Lord of glory. They were the instruments of Christ's ultimate humiliation, indeed. And in doing so, they brought upon themselves the wrath of God and, ultimately, the destruction of of their nation and their people. That is history. But Christ was slain from before the foundation of the world. Christ was slain before the fall of Adam. And the nails that placed him on that cross might have been provided by the Jews. They might have been hammered in by the Romans. But they were caused by every man and every woman's sin. For the sins of his people Christ went to the cross. And so when Peter says, you 
crucified, we can receive that. We need to acknowledge that. Accepting that it was our sins that sent our Lord to the cross. So that we might rejoice when we hear God raised him from the dead. And in raising him from the dead, conquered the wages of sin, your sin, death, bringing life and salvation to unworthy sinners. I believe that's the essence of the gospel. You killed him. I killed him. God raised him from the dead. And now there is salvation. There is healing, not just of our legs and of our eyes and of our ears, but healing of our souls through the name of Jesus Christ and only that name. And Peter, this time, I'd have to say, lays it on pretty thick. He's got a different audience now. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he accuses this gathering of Israel's leaders of being the builders who rejected the cornerstone of Israel. I just wonder how, how these men must have reacted when they heard that. A notable miracle had taken place in their midst. They want to know what happened. They're disturbed because these Galilean fishermen are proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. And they don't believe in that. They're primarily upset, and we read this elsewhere in the Gospels, not so much because it's a religious disturbance and they want to know the truth, but rather because their position of authority in Judea was allotted to them by the grace of the Romans so long as they kept the peace. And Romans did not like disturbances. Romans did not allow secret societies. They did not permit unauthorized gatherings. You did not have free assembly of speech. You couldn't do such things because the Romans believed all such things were seditious, treasonous, and dangerous. And so any gathering of more than maybe a dozen people was liable to be met with a, a cohort from the local legion breaking it up, sometimes quite violently. And that wasn't good for the Sadducees. So they want to get to the bottom of this, and they ask, by what authority? But it's interesting. In what name? In what name do you do these things? I mentioned last week, we don't understand the Jewish concept of the word name. There was only one name, Hashem, the name that they would not even pronounce, the name of God, Yahweh. But under that name, the word name had that sense of authority, the name of the Father. And the children were frequently named in the name of their father. They were Ben Joseph, because the father brought a certain authority, a certain gravitas. So in what name, they ask Peter, are you doing these things? The apostles, as F.F. Bruce notes, are technically on their defense. They're on trial. Later, we're going to witness um, the disciple Stephen, who is technically giving his defense. I think we'll find in the history of the scriptures and of the church that true Christian defense is frequently very offensive. It is frequently on the attack and not on the defense. And Peter goes on the attack by quoting from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, you're all familiar with that last part because we've been singing it ever since we've been Christians, right? This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day the Lord... No, no, this isn't the day. The day the Lord's made all days. Of course, he's the maker of time. Sometimes when we sing, we may have cute little ditties coming from the scriptures, but we've sucked the meaning out of them. The day that the psalmist is talking about is the day that Jesus Christ was announced by the power of the resurrection to be the chief of the corner, the cornerstone, the the stone that the builders despised, the builders rejected as being not very dignified, not very illustrious heritage. I mean, he was a carpenter from Galilee. We, we turn that stone away. No, we're not going to use that one. These were incompetent builders. But now God has intervened, and he has taken that stone that you have rejected, and by the manifestation of the power of life in the resurrection, he has declared Jesus Christ to be both Lord and Christ. In other words, he is the cornerstone. And we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But we have, in human history, a long, long lineage of incompetent builders. If you just consider the history of the church as an institution, as it has grown in the world, if you follow anything with regard to church history, you will see that very quickly the top was populated by incompetent builders. If you turn your attention to the state and to government, whether in the past or today, and we'll find that history is full of incompetent builders. And we need to take to heart and to our understanding that intimacy with institutional authority is not the biblical way, but rather the way of the world. Now this should be a message that we as Americans would embrace, because we kind of started out as rebels, didn't we? Even coming over here was because our religion did not mesh with the institutional religion of the lands that we left, or that our yearning for political freedom and liberty didn't quite mesh with the institutional authority of the governments of the lands in which we were born. My ancestors did not come over for religious reasons, but for political. Many of yours came over for religious. But we are a nation of those who rejected institutional authority as being incompetent. And yet, 200 years later, the evangelical church in the United States is embracing politics as a means of bringing in the kingdom of God and turning to politicians and to the builders, whether of the church or of the state, as if they know what they're doing. And they never have. Because there is a principle at work, a principle that is according to the prince of the power of this age. And the more entwined we get in the power structure of the world, whether we incorporate it into the church or whether as a church we ally ourselves with the state, 
no matter how that principle of authority and power enters into the life of the believing community, it will corrupt it. It will draw it away from the truth and away from God. The leaders of this world do not know how to value what God values. They do not know how to estimate a man according to the wisdom of God. This was true even of Israel, who initially chose Saul as their first king because he was so tall. And then even Samuel was ready to anoint Jesse's oldest, then his second oldest, then his third, all the way down, seven sons. Samuel had the lid off the oil. Hey, he looks good. Even Absalom, he was good looking. Not a lot of hair. Apparently that was popular back then. And all the nation flocked to Absalom. When God had already chosen the heir of David, the man whose name was Peace, Solomon, God looks to the heart. Man looks to the outward appearance. God understands the motives. God understands, as no one else can, what he is doing in the life of any man or woman. We don't see that. And so we need to doubt our judgment, and we should especially doubt the judgment of the builders of this world and even the builders of the church. We are a non-denominational independent congregation not without thought not without consultation among the elders of the church over the years of the life of fellowship bible church should we join in with this association should we join this denomination we have a lot of agreement with the, these people over here why don't we join together and form a denomination because every time that has happened it has resulted in an institutional structure that absorbs to itself the, the models of the world and becomes corrupt. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is something that is very current. It was very real in the days of Peter and John, but it is very current to us today. Election after election, we are encouraged to get involved. We're encouraged to use our pulpits to preach for or against politics. We're encouraged to embrace political power and legislative action to bring about the changes that we yearn to see or to bring back what once was in our land. When are we going to understand that the fate of nations is in the hand of God and that the only thing that can change the heart of men is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we had time as a church, time to spare, where we're not studying the scriptures, praying for the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, preaching the gospel from the pulpits, beseeching men everywhere, as Paul did, to be reconciled to God, if after all of that we have time, then maybe we can get involved in politics. But do we not realize that when God changes the heart through regeneration, 
He changes the mind too. Sanctifying it and renewing it with the washing of the water of the word. So that a regenerate community becomes one that begins to think God's thoughts after him. Which extends into the morality and to the ethics and to the business practices and to the sanctity of life and of marriage, all the things we want Congress to protect are the honor and glory of God. There is no other name. There is no other office. There is no other authority given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Well, we think of it as, uh, you know, just a stone that marks out the date that the building was built. You see them in big cities, older cities. It is, of course, on the corner. But back in the Middle East, things were built, especially the temple, of stone. And the cornerstone was the stone that set the plumb and the level for the whole building. It was the most important stone because it had to be perfectly plumb and level. All of its corners had to be 90 degrees because from the cornerstone all of the walls would be set as far as their square, their level, and their plumb. They were straight, which in both the Hebrew and in the Greek is the same word for righteous. This stone was prophesied as being the, be the, the beginning of the building of God's true temple. That was the cornerstone. Not the temple that Herod was building, but the temple that God would build. And God brought many prophets, many seers, many kings who were not themselves the cornerstone. But he prophesied that he would bring the cornerstone and that the builders, the leaders of Israel would reject him. But God took that cornerstone out of the heap of the valley of Kidron where the Jewish leaders had cast Jesus and he now builds the true temple. He has set it in place. Just as he says using another metaphor, I have set my king on Zion. Here he uses the metaphor of a building. He says, I have set my stone in the corner, a man of perfect righteousness, a man perfectly straight in all planes, and from that vantage point, I will now build my church with living stones. Believers, the plumb line and the level of the true church and of every member is, I believe, simply this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Father, we do adore the wisdom of your redemption. The beauty of choosing the foolish things of this world and the off-scourings of this world rather than the noble and the beautiful. The beauty of, of choosing the weak, the stone cut without hands, the insignificant rabbi from Galilee 
to be the chief stone of the corner. And Father, we are so grateful that by your grace and mercy, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have made us living stones. You have given us life and life everlasting. And you are now molding us and fitting us according to the pattern of that cornerstone, conforming our wills and our minds to that of Jesus Christ. That we were, when we are set in place in his temple, it will be a beautiful and perfect building. We long to see that revealed, but we know, Father, that all times and seasons are according to your will, and we accept and submit to that. We ask, however, Father, that you might give us a glimpse in our mind's eye by faith of the building that is being erected by Jesus Christ, the temple of God, the church. And we pray that you would indeed continue to build and to add to her number daily those who are being saved, but also, Father, that you would prevent any error, any corruption from entering into the true church, that you would keep us level, that you would keep us plumb, that we would be orthodox, that we would be straight and righteous. In our lives and in our church, we ask for your glory and for our good and for the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.